Well, I know there will come a day, probably for most of us, it will be when we get to heaven, when we can sing as effortlessly as Jason, huh? That day will come. <laughs> well, glad you're here this morning. And uh, we, as, as Carmen mentioned, um, if you're new to Daybreak, or maybe you just have come in the last couple of weeks, I want to just refocus you on where we've been this summer. We've been focused on the Old Testament, which is the portion of Scripture that comes before the birth of Jesus. Everything that was a part of God's plan that led up to the birth of Christ is in the Old Testament, and uh, we are, we've been working through, taking stops along the way in the Old Testament with a particular focus on a group of people called the Israelites. And the Israelites were people who were chosen by God so that the world, entire world, could come to know who God was through them and through their existence. So we've hit on a few of the stories. We talked a little bit about creation in the Tower of Babel and how that was kind of the foundational set the stage for an understanding of of God's purpose and his plan to be in covenant relationship, which then we talked about in the life of Abraham. We talked about the story of Joseph and how the Israelites ended up in Egypt. And then two weeks ago, we talked about Moses, the reluctant leader that God chose um, to lead his Uh, people out of Egypt and uh, to lead them towards the promised land. And last week, we talked about the Israelites and uh, their wandering in the wilderness and how that was such a challenging season for God's people as they complained about their circumstance and they were in what we called the land between, which uh, really means they were between Egypt and the promised land, between the place that God rescued them from and the place where God was leading them to. And they struggled for 40 years as they wandered in the wilderness. So that's where we left off last week, and we're going to land today in a place that moves us ahead about three or 400 years. So I updated you from where we've been, and now before we can start today, we have to talk about just briefly those three or 400 years so you have a full picture. Uh, It's just three or 400 years, but I thought I would update you anyway. So here's what happened in those three or four hundred years to the Israelites. First of all, they did make it to the promised land, uh, the land that was promised them. And Moses uh, was not able to go into the promised land. And I'm going to have to stop. And Matt, can you do anything about those low mids? Because I'm echoing so loud in my own ears. I can't. Thank you very much. Just make me flat (laughs) across. Sorry. I don't know if that's just up here on stage, but I hear myself three times right now. So... (laughs) In the three or four hundred, those three or four hundred years, they made it to the promised land, and Moses turned over the reins of leadership to Joshua. And Joshua was a very courageous leader that, that God empowered to lead his people into the land that was flowing with milk and honey. The Bible called it the, the land of Canaan. And the land was then divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. They were each given uh, pieces of land. And you can read all about that in the book of Joshua. As a matter of fact, if you need encouragement or you need empowered, uh, the book of Joshua is a great book to read uh, because you can see God's promises and his faithfulness as people t- his people took steps of obedience to him. And so here the, God's, the children of Israel and uh, in the book of Joshua, it, it ends with them ready uh, in the promised land to experience God's blessings and all that he intended for them. But it didn't take long for the Israelites to lose their motivation and turn away from the commitments that they had made to God. As a matter of fact, uh, shortly thereafter, Joshua and the elders of the the tribes of Israel died. And in their death, uh, there was a leadership vacuum amongst the, uh, the, in the children of Israel, in the people of Israel. And instead of enjoying the freedom and the prosperity that God had intended for them to enjoy, uh, Israel went into one of the darkest stages of its history, which leads us into the book of Judges. 
And I want to be clear about this. The reason why they went into that dark place was the same pattern that we have seen uh, since we looked at, uh, at from the beginning of the Old Testament. And that's that they chose their own way instead of God's way. Both personally and corporately, they chose their own way. And so they found themselves in captivity again. And once again, out of desperation, Israel began to cry out to God. They cried out to God, and because of God's promise and because of his love for them, God raised up 12 judges. And the judges came in, into place, uh, both men and women. Uh, they were really heroes, uh, the, the 12 judges. And these judges were far from perfect, but they were submissive to God, and God used them in a powerful way to help bring the people of Israel out of their, their sin and their bondage. So the book of Judges ends with Israel Again, descending back into this place of violence and chaos. And the book concludes by saying this. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And because they were living for, for themselves instead of for God, and be, uh, Israel became a very dark place and was waiting for God's hope and God's light to reenter. And has always been the case with God and his faithfulness to his people. God had a plan. And it, this plan was going to get kicked off with a woman named Hannah, who we're going to look at this morning in her life and how she poured out her soul to God. Now, most of us here today, probably all of us, have prayed to God in one way or another during our lives. And these prayers that we pray take different shapes or different forms. Um, some of them are, are just ritual prayers, like maybe before you eat, you always have a habit of praying, or possibly before you go to bed, you always pray. Uh, maybe when you come to church on Sunday, you're focused on, hey, we're going to come together and, and corporately we're going to pray. Some prayers are, are requests that we have. And sometimes when you get in a place where there's a need in your life or someone close to you has a need, you take those things before God in prayer. But sometimes we pray prayers that are really, really personal. They just come from like, the depths of ourselves. Sometimes we, we pray prayers that are out of deep pain and humility and difficulty and brokenness in our lives. And sometimes we can actually look at those prayers and say, when I prayed that prayer, I poured out my soul to God. I just went before God and I just cried out to him with everything I had and poured out my soul before him. And I know in my own life there have been a Sometimes where I could describe my prayer life in that way, that I came before God and I just poured out my heart to him. And I was trying to think about what seasons of my life can I remember doing that, where I just threw myself before God and said, God, this is where I am. And uh, I think I could categorize them in a few ways. One of them would be when I felt broken by my own selfishness or my own sin or my own bad choices. And I just got to the place where I was so disgusted with myself that I just threw myself before God and said, I'm a mess, Lord. Like, I have been going my own way, and I've been walking away from you, and I cry out to God. I can think of other times when I've felt broken by tragic circumstances that have taken place in my life or, or in the life of someone that I love, just circumstances that are way outside of anything that I could do or anybody else can do, and, and we pour out our soul to God. can also think of times when I've felt broken because life isn't turning out quite the way that I'd expected it would, and how I'd originally planned. And so I feel confused and, and uh, disappointed, and I cry out to God. And sometimes it could be a combination of those things. Maybe you've experienced that, your own sin or your own depravity, and then a circumstance hits at the same time, or maybe you have an unmet expectation. But it's in those situations, it's in those times of brokenness for me, that I find myself wanting to be fully authentic with God, and wanting to say, God, here I am. 
I need you desperately in this situation. And today as we look at Hannah's story, we're going to talk about just that. What does it mean to pour out our souls before God? And then the big question for you today is, why should I even do that? Like, why should I be authentic with God and pour out my heart to him? To what benefit does that have? And why, why does God ask that of me? So if you haven't pulled out your outline, I'm going to ask that you would take out your outline uh, right now. And the first blank in your outline, or the first thing that we're going to talk about as we look at God's word today is this. I pour out my soul to God when, number one, my brokenness leads to authenticity. When my brokenness leads me to authenticity. And we're looking at the book of 1 Samuel today. I just briefly summed up Joshua and Judges for you. Uh, So we're we're jumping into 1 Samuel, which is where uh, today's story takes place. We learn quickly that Hannah was struggling. I mean, she was struggling deeply. She was married to a man named Elkanah, who was also married to a woman named Peninnah. So yes, you heard me correctly. One guy, two wives. Um, You know, I, I... thought of this story and I thought of Elkanah and I was like, I don't even know how you begin to manage that. You know, I, I, I work really hard to honor and respect and love one woman. I can't even imagine the challenge that that would be for him. But at that time, uh, Elkanah was married to two women's, w- women, Hannah, two women's, those. Uh, now, here's the trick. Penina had a handful of children, the Bible says. But um, at that time, Hannah was barren. She, had, she was childless. And as we see with a number of other stories in Scripture, childlessness is a source of great pain and difficulty in the lives of God's people. So in the culture of that time, childlessness was, was a social embarrassment that was considered a form of failure on the part of the woman. Uh, children were really important because not only did they, uh, were they important to the so- social and economic structure of that society, but they were a source of labor. You worked the family business. So if you didn't have any kids, you didn't have any kids to work the family business with you. And also, uh, kids were the ones who, in their culture, took care of their parents. Even when parents got to a middle age, the kids stepped in, ran the business, and took care of their parents. So it's very possible that Elkanah actually took on Penina as a wife after he realized that Hannah was going to be unable to give him children. So you can imagine the, dyna- the dynamics there relationally and the failure that Hannah uh, must have felt in that case. Um, Elkanah would have, wa- would have wanted to make sure that his ancestral line was going to be continued and that he was going to be taken care of. Well, believe it or not, with all those dynamics going on, the Bible tells us that Hannah and Peninnah didn't get along very well. Surprise, surprise. So if any of you were thinking of polygamy, this story today might be a good case study in why that might not be such a good idea. But scripture says that Peninnah would intentionally ridicule Hannah because she was unable to have children. Sounds like a really nice person. (laughs) And that this cruel behavior would often lead to Hannah weeping bitterly over this loss. In fact, at one point in the story, we have Hannah in tears and Elkanah, her husband, comes to her and he says, honey, why are you weeping? Why have you stopped eating? Don't I mean more to you than even 10 children? And so we find the well-known principle at work that where we find a woman crying, we also find a man who has said something stupid. Okay, this, we see this throughout scripture in the course of time. Uh, the insensitivity. Don't I mean more than 10 children to you? Yes, dear. So we pick up the story in your outline. This comes from 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 9, and you can follow along as I read. It says, Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly, and she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, 
If you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life and no razor will ever be used on his head. And that's uh, part of the Nazarite vow. That's a a setting apart of, of a child to the Lord. And she kept on praying to the Lord. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. So Hannah is brokenhearted and discouraged. She's frustrated and angry. She's disappointed and feels ashamed not only by her own barrenness, but by the ridicule of Penina, her wife, sister-in-law, however you call that, the misunderstanding of her own husband, who doesn't understand her longing for a child. And now she's even misunderstood by the spiritual leader in her life, by the priest, who thinks that she's drunk or that she's been behaving improperly. Now, when we come to the place in our lives where we experience brokenness, Many times when we're hurting that way, we feel misunderstood by everyone who's around us. And we can feel that, that people don't understand our pain or they don't understand the why behind our hurt and that they can't identify with the struggle that's going on inside of us. And it's easy for us to end up feeling a very, very alone. And I'm sure that's what Hannah felt in this moment. And when we start to feel like we're all alone, one of the temptations for us is to begin to isolate ourselves from other people emotionally. And often, we end up lumping God in with everyone else. And we start to think that God doesn't understand us either, so we isolate ourselves from God emotionally as well. And it becomes a very dangerous place for us to be because, as we've talked about before, God designed us to do life with him and with each other. And when we isolate ourselves, uh, we can cut ourselves off from the relationship with God that was to sustain life for us and from life-giving relationships that God has given us with other people. He designed us to be in community. He designed us for intimacy with him and with others. And discouragement and disappointment, if we isolate ourselves, can often lead us to a place of despair. The first semester of my freshman year of college was a great year for me. I I, um, was going to, I went to college in North Georgia. It was about an hour north of Atlanta, so I got to leave Pennsylvania. I love to go explore new areas, and I love meeting new people, so I just had a great first semester in college. And it was a small uh, Christian college, about 1,200 students. Uh, but on the first day that I was there, the intro to, for the new students, uh, that week I met a girl uh, who, uh, and a couple of friends who ended up uh, were my roommates, and, and uh, then this girl Uh, We quickly started dating, and uh, I dated her through my whole first semester of college. Now, in high school, I had dated some, but I never had any longer-term relationships. Uh, They were just all kind of short-term relationships. And so for me, I hit it off with this girl. She came from a great Christian family. Uh, She was a lot of fun, and I dated her for a whole three months, which was the longest relationship of my life at that point, a dating relationship. And so when I went home for Christmas break, 
um, my family was giving me a hard time about this, and they're all saying, like, ah, you went to a Christian college, you're going to be married before your sophomore year, you know, just joking around. I wasn't ready for that. So uh, I decided that when I got back, I was going to break up with her. We'd still be friends, but, you know, this would all be good. So when we got back after Christmas break, she brought me a Christmas gift, and I broke up with her. That was the way that that exchange went. And uh, again, where there's a crying woman, there's a man who's said or done something really stupid. So, uh, but anyway, I, I thought, you know, this is going to be a great semester. I'll just, she and I will stay good friends and still be really active in, in all the things that I was involved in. What I didn't anticipate was that she would almost immediately start dating a guy who lived across the hall from me. So we had a small school, and, and every time I would go back to my dorm and went in to go to my wing of the dorm, she and this guy that she was now dating would be there, and I would have to literally, like, pass them, walk right by them to get to my room. And so at first this became, you know, I was like, well, whatever. And then over a few weeks, I really started to experience a lot of pain and anxiety and and inside I just started to second guess this decision that I had made because I really liked her and respected her a lot and now I was spending no time with her and she was off with another guy and, you know, jealousy and all those kinds of things. And so other friends are asking me, hey, are you all right with all that? And of course I'm I'm isolating myself emotionally, telling, oh, I'm fine, I'm good, you know, not sharing with anybody uh, what I was really feeling. And then uh, I can remember we got about midway through that semester, and it was just one of those times where I came back and my emotions were at a peak, and I remember going into my dorm room and just kind of throwing myself down on my bed, and I kind of yelled it out with God. Like, I was so angry and frustrated and just said, God, you know, why would this happen? This wasn't at all what I had hoped for or planned. This seems like a mean thing to have this person that I care about. You know, not at all owning my responsibility in any of it, just blaming God and others. But, uh, but nonetheless, that led me to a place with God. That was the first time in my life that I can honestly say I poured out my soul to God. That was the first thing maybe in my life that was big enough for me emotionally to get my arms around that first major loss that I had ever really experienced in life. And I poured out my soul to God, and I just laid it all on the line, everything that I was feeling, everything that I, I wanted differently, everything that, uh, my, all my disappointment. God met me there in that moment, and that moment, that time, the rest of that semester, the second half of that second semester in my freshman year, was what I credit basically everything good in my current relationship with God came from that time with God. Because my call to ministry, my decision to follow God regardless, my decisions to be obedient to him, to entrust myself to him, when my, my time with him really became meaningful and rich, and my relationship with him I would describe as intimate for the first time ever started in those moments of pain because I learned how to pour out my soul to God for the very first time. I had never done that before. And that was kind of a marker that led to many other times in my life where I needed to do the same thing and experience the same thing. It was a tough experience for me, but but like I said, it was the beginning of a new part of my journey with God, learning how to pour out my soul to him. My disappointment with my circumstance, my frustration with God, my anger at the situation I was in, all involved the temptation to lead me towards isolation. Isolation from other people and isolation from God. Because that's what brokenness does. It leads us to either draw close to God and and know what he has for us or to push us away from God towards lives that make us feel less real, less human, less authentic, less like the people that God created us to be. And like Hannah, 
God invites us to become authentic right in the middle of our pain, our emotion, and our grief. And God invites us to be real with him. And when we, pour, we learn to pour out our souls to God, it opens doors that we would never otherwise notice in our lives. And it allows us to put words to our pain and to express those words to our creator God, giving us the chance to be totally authentic and not to isolate ourselves and not to hold anything back. And we see this in the story with Hannah. We do. We see Hannah, she cries out to God for a child. We see it many times in the Psalms where the different writers of the Psalms cry out to God for deliverance, for comfort, for justice, for healing, for support, for rescue, for forgiveness, for relief, for mercy. We see it when people came to Jesus with their sicknesses and their diseases and their broken lives and they just threw them out before God. They just poured out their souls before Jesus. We see it when Jesus told people, come to me, all of you who are weary and have a heavy load to carry, and I'm going to give you rest. We see it when Peter wrote to followers of Christ who were going through a tough season and said, cast all your anxiety on him. Cast all your care on him because he cares for you. And there's an entire book in the Old Testament that's called Lamentations where the author just brings his laments before God, being honest with him about the pain that he's going through and the brokenness and being authentic with God about what he's feeling, why he's upset and why he's hurting so deeply. So here's the question for us this morning. Will we allow our brokenness to lead us to authenticity with God and with the people that God has placed around us? Or will we choose to isolate ourselves from intimacy with God and intimacy with others? And my prayer for us is that as difficult as it might be, that you and I would choose to follow Hannah's lead and that we would let the broken places in our life actually lead us to be authentic with God. Would you bow your heads with me for a moment this morning? I just want to give us a moment of silence this morning, a moment of quiet. I want us to take the next minute and talk to God about an area of our life that we want to become more authentic with him. What are you feeling this morning? Where's your pain this morning? It could have to do with your own failures and your own shortcomings. Maybe the disappointment you have in yourself. Have you told God how you feel about that? It could have to do with some difficult circumstance that you or someone you love is facing. And you've not talked to God about it. It could be some unmet expectation that you have in your life. It could be something totally different, but God is here this morning. He's present. And for the next few moments, I just want to invite you to identify what is going on inside of me and have I talked with God? Have I been authentic with him about what I'm feeling? And have I given him permission to speak into my life right now? Let's take these next few moments, just these next few quiet moments. Just be authentic with God about what's going on inside.
Dear God, we thank you that you invite us to come to you. We thank you that you invite us to be authentic with you. Thank you, God, that you can handle our brokenness, our anger, our despair. We ask you to meet us this morning in our brokenness, and we ask you to speak the truth to us in the middle of our pain. We ask you to make us men and women who choose authenticity with you over isolation. Lord, would you give us the courage and strength to pour out our soul just like Hannah? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we pour out our soul to God when our brokenness leads us to authenticity and when our authenticity leads to hope. When our authenticity leads to hope. You know, when you and I refuse to allow brokenness to lead us to isolation and we instead choose to be authentic with God and with other people, then our authenticity can have the opportunity to lead us to a new place. And I want to define what hope is today. Um, First of all, hope isn't uh, just wishful thinking. It's not just a positive attitude. It's not just expecting that good things could happen. You might want to write this down. Hope or godly hope is a future-oriented trust in God. Godly hope is a future-oriented trust in God. It's trusting God with what's up ahead. It's trusting God with what's yet to come. It's saying, God, I trust you with tomorrow, and because of that, I have hope. My hope isn't in my circumstance. My hope isn't in me. My hope isn't in what I can pull off. I'm trusting you. And getting back to the story of Hannah, remember that Eli the priest thought that Hannah was drunk and she said, no, I'm not drunk. I'm only pouring out my soul before God. I've been praying authentically in my brokenness. I've been praying out of my great anguish and grief. And then we go into verse 17 and 18, which are in your outline. And Eli answered, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Hannah said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. 
Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. See, after Hannah was authentic with God, and then after she was authentic with Eli about what she had been pouring out her heart to God uh, with, he spoke blessing over her. When Eli, when she had been real with him, when she came clean with him about what was going on in her life, Eli was able to speak blessing with her, and he actually joined her in her prayer. And what happens? It says her demeanor changed, her outlook changes, her appearance changes. She starts to experience hope, where she begins to trust God with the future, with whatever it is that the future holds for her. Hope gets us moving again. Hope lifts your chin. When you're in a place where you feel stuck, when you feel like you're not going anywhere, hope or future-oriented trust in God allows you to take steps forward, even if the pain is still present. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about our, um, one of the members of our church family, Mike Sponsler, who had an accident a couple weeks ago, and many of you have been praying for Mike and encouraging him, but uh, Mike was paralyzed uh, from the waist down in the accident, and he's been rehabbing even in the first couple of weeks here and working really, really hard. But Mike has such God-given hope right now when you go in to visit him or you go in to see him. And part of it is every day he's been able to do something little that is a next step for him. So he's put his hope in God. And every day, I mean, this week it was a big deal that he was able to get up and use his upper body strength and just even put some, try to put some weight on those legs in his lower body to try to regain some of that. But his hope is there. His hope is in God. And truthfully, I can tell you this morning, his hope might even be that God might not even change his circumstance, but that he's going to trust him for whatever he's going to bring. It's just been a beautiful thing to watch. And you have to remember that Hannah, when she left the temple, when she had finished authentically pouring out her soul before God, she was still childless. When she left that day, she didn't ha- put on a happy face because she knew instantly she was pregnant. She was still ch- her situation had not changed. Her circumstances were the same. And yet she went on her way. She ate something. Her face was no longer downcast. Her authenticity had led her to a new trust in God about what the future was to hold for her. And her authenticity led her to a godly hope. Now for Hannah... God's plan did lead to some new circumstances. And I want to pick up the story in verse 19. It says this, Early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord and then went back to their home in Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife Hannah and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I asked the Lord for him. So in time, the Bible says that God remembered Hannah and he gives her the son that she prayed for. And through the pain and the anguish and the pouring out of her soul before God, we see a woman who celebrates the gift that God gave her by naming him in a way that actually commemorates the journey that God took her on. And we don't know the length of that journey. We don't know the number of years that she struggled feeling misunderstood by her husband and by her husband's being mocked by her husband's other wife. We don't know the length of time that Hannah wrestled with all of that. But she named Samuel something that commemorates the journey. She actually named him Samuel, which means because I asked the Lord for him. Because I asked the Lord for him. She asked the Lord for a son and God gave her a son. And then when the time came, Hannah fulfilled the promise that she had trusted God and made with God. And she gave him back to the Lord. She took Samuel to the temple just like she had promised. And look in verse 24, it says this. After Samuel was weaned, and in those particular times, uh, Ladies, that probably would have been about five or six years old. (laughs) So a little further down the road. Uh, 
she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull and an epith of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and, and uh, Hannah said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. Hannah followed through on her promise to God. And even though it probably took all the strength that she could muster, she made the trek to the temple and gave her son back to God. You can see that Hannah's hope was in God, that she was trusting him with the future, with her future and with Samuel's future as well. And that hope let her give what she wanted most, her son, back to the God that had given him to her. In dedicating Samuel to God, Hannah was basically putting on display for everyone to see I was authentic with the Lord. He led me to hope, and I'm trusting him now with the future. In these next couple moments, I want you to watch uh, the testimony of Christy Dietz. Christy is an amazing member of our church family, um, and Christy's story relates a lot to Hannah's story. It echoes some of the same lessons that we've been looking at this morning. But as you hear Christy's story, I want you to focus in on this one particular thing. I want you to focus and notice the journey that God took Christy on as she learned to pour her soul out to him every day. Let's watch together. My infertility journey began 10 years ago. My husband and I had been married two years and we felt we were ready to become parents. So we began the journey of trying to get pregnant. Due to some medical problems, I knew I would struggle to conceive. At first, we trusted that God would just make it happen. Um, our faith was part of our journey, and we trusted that God knew the desire of our heart and cared about the desire of our heart. The first year was tough. We continued to pray daily that God would answer our prayers to have a baby. But the do after doctor's appointments, pregnancy test after pregnancy test, and just continued heartache, my heart was filled with sorrow, anguish, and somewhat anger that God wasn't answering our prayers. As a wife, I felt like a failure. Why would God create me to be a woman but take this one piece away from me? I had tough questions to ask God, but I wanted desperately for Him to answer them, and so I continued to seek His guidance. During the second year of our journey, we decided that it was time for sharing with some close friends that I was struggling. I needed Christian women to come alongside of me to support me, but more importantly to continue to point me to Christ when I doubted that He cared about me and loved me. I knew in my head that my hope was in Christ, but my heart was not aligning with my head. I wanted a baby, but I knew my hope wasn't in a baby, my hope was in Christ. I remember one worship evening at church sobbing in my husband's arms uncontrollably, wondering if I would ever be okay. Would the hurt be any less? Would I ever stop grieving wanting to be a mother? The loss of a dream. Sometimes grief is in regards to something taken away. And in this case, sometimes it's harder to even articulate when it's something that's never given. I know the healing would come, but it was going to take effort on my part. I would have to know that through this, that God was going to be right beside me, that I would have to face these emotions head on. I promised myself that I would work hard on knowing how to pray to God and trust and believe that He still cared about the desire of my heart. So I dug deep, figuring out how to explain my raw, real, unspoken emotions. I prayed daily, 
constantly in the Word. It wasn't going to be easy, but I needed to trust God. I began asking the really difficult questions like, Father, do you hear me when I pray? Do you care that I'm praying? Will you ever answer my prayers? Or is it not the desire of your heart for me to become a mother? Father, I know you can change my mind or work a miracle. What's it going to be? I remember waking up every morning and before getting out of bed, praying to God that I choose to trust that your plan is better for my life. It was a choice. It wasn't something that was going to come easy. And I needed to continually look up at Christ and not at myself or at my situation that I didn't have a baby, which is what my heart desired. It was a tremendously dark time and learning how to do that was difficult. It meant that I would have to continue to go closer to my Savior. And in my mind, I believed that that was God's plan all along. For me to walk down a journey that was difficult, that the only way I could get through was to continue to trust Him and His purpose for my life. And even though I couldn't see it at the time, what would be around the corner. We ended our three-year infertility battle in August 2006. I decided that we could continue the journey of heartache or we could put it all on the altar. After being encouraged by a friend to take a personal retreat, I did so. During that retreat, I prayed, I remember praying to God specifically, that when He decided to show us the plan for our life and our family, that He would blow me away. Well, God was working and about ready to do just that. In November in 2006, just a few short months later, God presented an opportunity for adoption with a family in California that we had never met. The baby was due in the beginning of January, and we had not started the adoption process. No clearances, no paperwork, no home study. We hadn't started anything. Was it even possible? In six short weeks, we became parents to a beautiful little boy born January 3rd, 2007, named Broderick Eaton. Just as I had asked God to blow me away, he blew me away all right. There was no doubt that this baby was to be part of our family. I always believed that God truly cared about the desire of my heart during my infertility journey, but it came more clear to me that God cared so much about the desire of my heart, but if eternity was at stake, that God would always trump that desire. God was clearly not finished with working in my heart. Just because I became a mom didn't make the infertility go away. It still was a difficult journey that I had to continually give back to God. December 9, 2011, I found out I was pregnant with our second son. We never expected six years later for our journey to include the blessing of being able to be pregnant. I know that this is only my story through infertility, and I know I have friends who have and who are still struggling. It's a very difficult journey, and even though God has blessed us with to be adoptive and biological parents, it has been a blessing to me to be challenged, stretched, and changed forever because of the journey he allowed me to take. The scars are still there and the pain is still real. But I know that if I wake up every day and trust God completely for the blessings in my life, that he will show me the path. For the last 10 years, I had been honest and trusted God's hand in the direction in my life. And it has given me overwhelming peace to set my eyes on him instead of myself. One of the things that impresses me most about Christy's story and about Christy, if you know her, is how 
she pursued God so intentionally in that even through her pain, she poured out her heart to him and chose uh, to place her hope in him and her trust in him every morning over and over and over again through a 10-year journey. Pretty awesome. Reminding herself throughout that time that God is bigger than her circumstance, which is really leads us to the wrap-up of our message this morning, and that's this. I pour out my soul to God when my hope leads me to worship. When my hope leads me to worship. First Samuel one twenty eight says, So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. You can almost hear the shakiness in Hannah's voice. And my guess is that Hannah at this point was uh, experiencing a whole different kind of tears than her earlier time when she poured out her heart to God. At this point, she was likely experiencing this bittersweet moment, having to remind herself of who God is, remind herself of the fact that Samuel ultimately belongs to God, and that in those moments, she worshiped as she gave him back to God. And she prayed out and said, Hannah prayed and said, "'My heart rejoices in the Lord.'" In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. That would be a symbol of strength for her. My horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. And I can't help but think, is she talking about Peninnah? <laughs> like, is that who she's talking about? All those years of being mocked, you know, and she sees God's purposes come through. And she says, my heart boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance, God. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. And Hannah's story is a beautiful one. It's an incredible illustration of what can happen when we pour out our souls to God. On your outline, I want you to maybe rewrite the four main words that we've discussed this morning. Just write them along the bottom or along the side. Brokenness, authenticity, hope, and worship. Brokenness, authenticity, hope, and worship. I think these four words do a great job of describing the pathway or the process for healing that God wants us all to be able uh, to experience. But there's a truth that we find in Scripture that we have to be careful we don't miss. And you may want to write this down as well. Sometimes God doesn't give us Samuel. Sometimes God doesn't give us a Samuel. And when we read the story about Hannah and we see how she acted toward God, we see how she prayed so fervently and how she promised to give her son back to God, and then we see that God gave her what she was asking for. The temptation for us is to try to copy her actions so that we can get what we want from God. But we can't control God, and we're not Hannah. And God calls each and every one of us to himself, but each of our journeys are very different. And God gave Samuel to Hannah, but I'm willing to bet that there were hundreds of other women in Israel who prayed a very similar prayer in that time frame. And God answered differently. I was thinking about that because this morning we had this focus on infertility almost through the story and the testimony, but I want you to think about your own journey. I think about the time when I poured out my soul before God to heal my mom after she had an unexpected brainstem stroke, but God didn't choose to heal her. He, took, he chose to take her home. And I think about when my wife and I finally, through prayer, made the decision that God was calling us to get involved in the adoption process. And there was a little baby from New York that we thought was God's leading, and we prayed that way for months, and we prayed fervently, and then it didn't work out. It just didn't work out. I think about single friends of ours who have been single for years and have longed to be married. And we've prayed and prayed and prayed. And God didn't send a Samuel. I think about loved ones 
of ours who we've prayed for marriages to be restored or families to be healed because of brokenness, and it didn't happen. But as I look at those four words, brokenness, authenticity, hope, and worship, I notice that they don't really require God to change our circumstances. They only require him to change us. And Hannah and you and me, our journeys are going to look really different. But the thing that is true for each and every one of us is that when we learn to pour out our soul to God, when we allow our brokenness to lead to authenticity, our authenticity to lead us to a place of hope, our hope to lead us to where we can truly worship, genuine change happens inside of us. We know that God never promises to change our circumstances, but he does promise to change us in the middle of our circumstances. And my prayer for all of us today is just like Hannah, God will use our brokenness and he'll draw us to himself. And that though the journey may look different, that the result will be the same for all of us, that we'll be able to worship. Then Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance, God. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Would you pray with me? Lord, today I'm emotional even as I look out and know the people within our church family who have prayed and prayed and prayed and you didn't give us Samuel. And at the same time, I can look out at members of our church family and see people who have prayed and prayed and trusted you for a 10-year or longer journey, much like Christy. And you provided, God, in an unexpected way, but you provided. And so, Lord, this morning, we commit to be people who pour out our soul to you, who are authentic with you. And God, along the way, we trust that that authenticity is going to lead to hope and that, God, in that hope, that we're going to be able to be worshipers of you and allow you to work in and through our lives for miracles that we couldn't anticipate or see coming. We love you, Lord. We commit ourselves to you, and we say, God, would you meet the brokenhearted where they are today? And God, at the same time, would you give hope and healing to those who are ready and need it this morning? We pray it in Jesus' strong name. Amen.